This is the Beyond the Studio podcast. I'm Amanda Adams. And I'm Nicole Muller, and we're here to help you figure out the business of being an artist. Here we'll have honest conversations with artists, makers, and business experts, and dive deep into the work that happens beyond the studio. If you find value in listening to these conversations, please consider leaving us a rating and a review or sharing some of your favorite episodes with your creative community. It's the easiest way to show us some love and help others find the podcast. Beyond the Studio is a fiscally sponsored project of Independent Arts and Media, I Am, a 501c3 nonprofit organization. You can now make contributions to the podcast by going over to our website, beyondthe.studio slash about. Just click on the button that says donate here. All donations made through IAM are tax deductible. Your support is greatly appreciated and goes directly towards sustaining the work of the podcast. If you're a fan of the podcast and want to share what you're learning beyond the studio, please consider submitting to our listener spotlight to be featured on our social media channels. It's also the best way to pitch yourself to be a guest on the show. Just follow the link in our show notes or on the contact page of our website, beyondthe.studio. And uh, thanks for listening. This episode is brought to you by Astropad Studio, the ultimate iPad app for artists. Astropad Studio turns your iPad into a drawing tablet by mirroring your favorite Mac or PC desktop apps directly onto your iPad. You get the flexibility of your Apple Pencil combined with the power of full desktop apps like Photoshop and Illustrator. The app is packed with features to customize your workflow, such as programmable gestures, custom pressure curves and pressure smoothing, and unlimited shortcuts. Astropad Studio is trusted by leading design agencies and animation studios around the world. Millions of artists already rely on Astropad Studio for Mac, and now it's available for PC artists too. If you're ready to take your creative workflow to the next level, you can start your 30-day free trial of Astropad Studio today. Visit astropad.com via the link in our show notes to get started. Plus, Beyond the Studio listeners, save 10% on your first year when you enter the promo code BEYOND, that's B-E-Y-O-N-D, BEYOND, at checkout. Um, On today's episode of Beyond the Studio, we are so grateful to be speaking with Jen Hewitt, who is a printmaker, surface designer, textile artist, and author based in the Hudson Valley. Jen's work combines her love of loud prints, 1970s maximalism, and saturated colors with the textures and light of the landscapes that surround her. In addition to creating her own products, Jen designs fabric for the quilting and home sewing market and home collections for national retailers. Clients and licensees include places like Anthropology, Moda Fabrics, Unilever, and World Market. She is also the author of two books, This Long Thread, Women of Color on Craft, Community and Connection, and Print Patterns Sew. Um, Jen, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. What I really love about your story, which I'm sure we'll get into more, is that your pathway to becoming a full-time artist has not been linear at all, which is actually like that of most artists, I feel. But I was wondering if you could give us a brief history of your career leading up to making this transition to pursuing your creative practice full-time. Sure. When I graduated from college way back in the mid-90s, I had an English degree, and there weren't that many jobs at that time because of a recession. And so I worked in education for a few years. 
and right around 2000, the dot-com boom, if people are old enough to remember that, um, which was the first mm -hmm. wave of tech companies in the Bay Area post-internet, um, that hit. And I thought, great, I want to start a business. I think I want to be a designer. I'm going to start a stationary business because all of my friends were going off and leaving for tech. And naturally, I wanted to do the exact opposite, which was to start mm. <laughs> a business that had to do with paper and tangible products. And so I ran that stationary business for a few years and did all the mistakes that you do when you're in your early to mid 20s. Um, and I just essentially ran that business into the ground. And I realized, well, I had to go back and get a regular job. So I worked for another stationary company and then actually moved into a company that fused tech and education. So I was working for an e-learning company and doing their HR and operations and kind of loved that job. I grew a lot in that job. I saw myself staying there for a number of years, but after about four years, the Great Recession happened. So mm. real estate imploded, the business folded, and because I was doing HR, I had to lay everybody off, including myself. Wow. Mm. And while I was working that job, which was super, for me at least, really operational and very much not creative, but I was working with all these designers and artists, I decided on a whim to take a screen printing class. And when I full, pulled my first print, I was just hooked. Like I had at that moment this thought, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. This is how I want to make a living. And so when I got laid off, it was this opportunity to do that, to go into the screen printing studio as much as possible. Nobody was hiring at that point. <laughs> so I was unemployed for, I think, almost two years, maybe 20 months. And I had the best fun employment. I had some savings. I had some, I had unemployment. And I just printed like crazy. And when that, you know, when the savings and the unemployment ran out, thankfully, it was right around the time that the economy was picking up again. So I went and got a full-time job, knowing that I couldn't support myself on my art alone. And I hated that full-time job so much. I lasted all of five months. Some friends asked me if I would be interested in doing HR consulting for their business. And I said yes. And I started with a four hour a week consulting arrangement with them, started getting a lot of referrals to other companies and kind of grew a business around that. And I really had wanted to do that because it allowed me to work eight hours a week, all the way up to 32 hours a week and make a living. And I would use all of my spare time, like every single bit of spare time to go to the studio and print. And I had an Etsy store at that point. I started going to craft fairs. And that was, that was, I want to say my side gig, but it wasn't really like my side gig was actually the consulting work I was doing. And that was what was supporting the artwork that I was doing. And so I was actually a consultant part-time. I worked for myself. I had a number of clients around the Bay area. I was a consultant for about six to seven years. And at the end of 2016 was when I let all of my consulting clients go. I, I started ramping down because I all of a sudden could project out my income for six months. And I'd never been able to do that before. And it wasn't just like a wish and a prayer, you know, mm -hmm. a lot of times when, um, even now mm -hmm. there are times when I project out my income and I'm not really sure what it will be. I mean, I know, I know what the baseline is going to be, but it could really spike some months. But back in those days, mm -hmm. it was just feast or famine. And I looked ahead for six months and I could actually say, this is how much I'm going to make every month and I think I'm going to be okay. And so that's when I knew it was time for me to quit consulting 
And so I've been running my business full-time since 2000, gosh, since 2017. So I guess it's been five years now, but I started it really in 2008 before I was laid off back when I opened my Etsy store and started selling things. So yeah, coming on, can't do math, 14 years now of running this business, but only six or seven years of it being full-time. Yeah, there's so much that I appreciate about this story um, because something that Amanda and I have talked about on the podcast previously too is just that ebb and flow uh, between, you know, the various jobs and careers that we may have and to support our our creative practices. And I know that I really relate to your story personally because I've had moments where I've tried to shift the focus onto my own painting practice and then gone back to working full time jobs and. I'm also living in San Francisco now, and when I first came out here, started working part-time at SFMOMA, one of the art museums, and I really felt like that was the side hustle, and my studio practice was what I was really trying to grow, and for a while, that balance worked really well because I had you know, a part-time job for you know maybe four days a week, and then the rest of the time I could be in the studio. But for me, it's only been within the last year that I've been able to maybe more confidently make this shift into pursuing my practice full time. And it it really does feel like all of these things have to align. And I even those years where I had kind of tried to make a shift and then gone back to working other full time jobs, I feel like I learned so much in that period about what it actually would require of me to sustain, uh, you know, a life as an artist. And so um, it's just really reassuring to hear all of this uh, in, in your story because I feel like, yeah, there's there's a lot of pressure sometimes put around this transition of like making it work as a full-time artist. And if you have to, you know, pick up other freelance gigs or part-time jobs, it can kind of feel a little bit like, oh, I failed or that didn't work out. And that's not to say that it can't in the future. But yeah, I it's really great to hear more of your story. And I also wanted to mention that I've find it interesting that some of these uh, like creative pivots or shifts in your career came out of these times of recession, because we've heard that from other artists too. And I feel like that's especially relevant today because, you know, we've just lived through it again. And, you know, hopefully we are maybe on that upswing now in terms of, you know, opportunities bouncing back. But, you know, we are also in the midst of this, this great resignation where it seems like a lot of people are looking to make career changes. I'm kind of curious, did you always know that you wanted to ultimately pursue something creative? I mean, from the time that you started your stationary business, were you thinking that, you know, eventually, ultimately, you wanted to get back to something like that? Or did you see your career going in different directions? I always wanted to do something creative. And just from a family perspective, my parents were not very encouraging of me being an artist. And that's not, I'm not faulting them at all for that. I Mm -hmm. I don't think they had any, there were no models for success for them, for people who were artists or even graphic designers. And so I was always discouraged from looking at that as a career, but it was definitely something that kept coming back to me over and over again, was that I wanted to be a working artist of some sort. And when I was in my twenties, it just felt like, you know, I'm in my twenties, I'm only going to be in this place once. I might as well make all the mistakes now. And so, and dive into this, really thinking that it was what I was going to do for the rest of my life, but I just wasn't capable of running it, that business the way it needed to be run. And so everything I did after that was an aim to get me back to the place where I could be a working artist again. 
And that meant getting myself out of the debt that I incurred when I had my stationary business um, and getting to a place where I had some savings. I also knew that I didn't really want to do wholesale and have a lot of product again and have to manage inventory and also have to create new collections multiple times a year. That's just not what I wanted to do. I learned that from having the stationary business. So I had to figure out how, if I were to be an artist, how I would be able to to do that without having that weight on my shoulders of having to run a wholesale business. And between the time I closed my stationary business and I left my, or I laid, laid myself off from my corporate job, the world had changed, the internet had changed, right? It had become a lot more flexible. I don't know that people were, will remember, but we used to call it Web 2.0 because suddenly there were blogs Social media was just becoming a thing. And then we had Etsy. And so there was this whole new way where I could sell my products and get publicity for them and do marketing that didn't involve going to trade shows, connecting with wholesale buyers or retailers. I could get stuff out on my own. I could start my own marketing engine, like you know, social media, having a blog, sending out newsletters, going to craft fairs, the world had just changed. And so in many ways, I was really lucky in that I was able to have a second chance as, as an artist at a time where it was really possible to make a good living as an artist if you just knew what you were doing. Yeah, it's interesting because it sounds like, you know, there were these shifts happening in the world that maybe made it more possible for artists to make a living off of their work. But it also sounds like a result of really conscious shifts that you were making within your business model and recognizing what was working and what wasn't working. And I'm really interested to hear more about that because, again, it's something that we've talked about on the podcast with other artists. And I know between Amanda and I personally, um, Amanda's made a lot of shifts within her own uh, creative craft business and you know made conscious decisions to move away from wholesale and things like that. And so... Oh, yeah. yeah, I don't know if you have anything to add there, Amanda. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just hearing you say, talk about like kind of early, I don't know, like early pitfalls or, or early struggles in in your creative career. I was like, oh my God, I've made so many of those same same decisions. And it led me to many of the same decisions where I think, and I don't know if this is how you felt about wholesale in the beginning, but I think when I first saw wholesale as an opportunity with my business, I was like, I can create so many things and I can share it with so many people and so many people will have my work and know about it. But it also comes with a lot of exhaustion and overextending yourself and overextending your work for less than it's worth oftentimes. And it's like, it's really hard to sustain in a way that both feels sustainable as, as a human, but also sustainable as an artist and, and having a practice and producing work. And it, it definitely led me to have to think like, I can't keep doing this to myself. And like, I'm curious how you kind of came to those uh, decisions as well. I haven't really done um, wholesale in this current business in my iteration right now as an artist, because when I had the stationary business, I did it exclusively. There was no way for me to sell directly to consumers at that point. And so all of the mistakes I made in that business had to do with not planning inventory correctly. Not all of them, but most of them. And so not never having the cash flow to actually produce new things, but feeling compelled to produce new things all the time <laughs> because it was so seasonal and people always want 
new items. These stores, like they serve, they thrive on having new things to lure customers in with. And there's nothing wrong with that at all, at all. But it wasn't the right thing for me. And I had gotten to the point too where I was selling a decent amount of stationery every year. You know, like in the early 2000s, I think I was doing over $100,000 a year just on my own, which was phenomenal. But at the same time, I was doing everything and I was never making enough money. I never had enough extra cash to hire people to come help me pack the orders and to ship everything out and to manage inventory. So I was the one doing everything and my creative work really suffered. And I decided that that was the one thing I wanted to let go of the next time around was feeling this need to wholesale, to get big in order to sustain myself to grow the business big is what I mean. And it just, it wasn't feasible for me. And so I was willing to let that go. And I really had thought about licensing because licensing was also, it wasn't as prevalent then as it is now, because it was, you actually had to do work. Like you had to send out your portfolio and you had to keep in touch with art directors and you had to do the trade shows. And so the barrier to entry for that was actually higher um, than it is now where you can have a web presence and, you know, um, an online portfolio. But I knew that that was where I wanted to go eventually the next time around. And then with the current business I have right now, I started out by making all my own products. I screen printed fabric. I had them sewn into bags. Sometimes I sewed them into bags. Sometimes I'd send them out to um, a factory, a local factory in San Francisco, or people who who were happy to sew the bags themselves. And I would sell them, but my margins on that were too low for me to wholesale them um, just because it required my labor to produce these items. And if you are the sole source of labor, if you're the, if you're the source of production, there's only so far that you can go and there's only so big you can go before yeah. you either hurt yourself or you have to bring someone on. Um, and I definitely, my back went out at one point after I decided, I long after I had decided I wasn't doing wholesale, but I was still printing all my own products and selling them in my shop, and I just scaled down that year and decided that's it. I'm not doing this anymore. But that's probably a very long-winded <laughs> answer to your question. But no, wholesale. And, and you know, I have a lot of people now that I um, have collections in stores that I've licensed, and I have fabric, and I also have a decent number of products that I produce myself and have, or design myself and have produced and manufactured for me, that wholesalers or retailers have started asking me to sell. And it's a little bit tempting in terms of like a short-term infusion of cash, but when I think of what's required to sustain that, which is new products fairly regularly, larger orders for half the amount of money (laughs) that I would get wholesale, or retail, um, yeah. and just you know, having to ship out these orders, I just decided it's not it's not worth it to me. Um, there's only one of me. I don't feel like creating a whole wholesale operation and hiring help to do that kind of thing. So um, mm-hmm. that's where I am, and I think that's where it's going to stay for a while. Yeah, I appreciate hearing that. I think it's. Um, I think it's easy to assume that because it, you know, something is a functioning business model out in the world means that it could be a functioning business model for you. But like, you really have to take into consideration what it means for your time, for your energy, for your life. 
and whether or not it's worth it. And I was going to say, like, and you, I'm grateful you brought it up, like, art making is extremely physical and it can really take a toll on your body. And when you're pushing yourself so much for even less and like, you know, over tapping your, your like most valuable resource, it's, it's so dangerous and it's so easy to, to overdo it. And Nicole and I were talking a little bit earlier about yoga and I was like, oh, I have, I have to do it now. Cause it's like a necessary part of my, my mental health practice where it's like, I'm either having regular panic attacks or I'm doing yoga <laughs> a little more regularly, but also it's a, a very necessary part of my art practice. Cause like my body hurts after being hunched over for hours. And I, I do a lot of sewing and, and craft work. So, you know, it, it's draining and it, and it hurts. And I want to be able to make art for the rest of my life. And I don't want to burn out my body on less, <laughs> less money for, for that resource and that time. And it's, I don't know, it's, it's easy to undervalue that resource, but it's necessary to exactly like value it so preciously. And in my case, um, you know, I was doing so much work at home on my own that could have been outsourced to factories that actually had the equipment to do it in a way that wasn't taxing on people's bodies, right? Like I can send things out to be screen printed at a factory that actually has like the proper ergonomic setup (laughs) for people to print and enough space to do so. And so it didn't make sense for me to be the one that was printing all of these things by hand because I'm not a production printer. So I was happy to give other businesses that that task, that job, because really, like, I was I was breaking myself in the process. Would you say that was one of the primary motivators to starting to license out your work? I'm wondering if you ever did start bringing on studio assistants or if it was really through outsourcing and through making these shifts in your business model that you started to, you know, be able to or to be able to make these shifts in your business model. Hmm. Yeah, licensing actually came to me in many ways. I Part of the reason I haven't had a linear path is because, and I think it's really hard to have a linear path as an artist because you don't do A, B. Yeah, if there even is such a thing. <laughs> no, I don't think you can do like one, two, three and get, and get to a certain point. It's not like being an accountant, mm-hmm. right? Where you gradually get more and more experience and different kinds of jobs and you, you move up a ladder. It wasn't, it's not like that for art. And so I had, I knew that I wanted to do licensing, but I just kind of put it out there that I wanted to do licensing, like out into the ether, out into the universe. And then at some point the licensing started coming to me. And um, it was partly, actually it was mostly because I was printing on fabric and I wasn't selling the fabric I was printing. I wouldn't sell yards of hand printed fabric because that would be like $200 a yard. I would cut it into bags and make bags with that. But there was such a demand for the fabric that, of course, a fabric company was going to come to me and say, hi, we'd like to work with you. And so that's how that came about. And with licensing in particular, it's mostly that you start working with one company that can get your work further out into the world, reaching people that you wouldn't normally reach on your own it's a domino effect that all these other companies start seeing your work and they want to work with you. And so it really took getting that first couple of licensing deals for everything else to start falling into place. 
even now I have people coming to me saying, I saw your collection at Anthropology. I saw your collection at World Market. We would love to work with you. It's, it's such a fantastic collection. And yeah, so people ask me how to get started in licensing. And sometimes I say, I don't know, you just kind of start. <laughs> um, I mean, there is definitely a way to do it, but it's, uh, it's not one size fits all. But licensing, yes, did allow me the ability to make a living without having to produce everything on my own. Yeah, I, I do have more questions about the world of licensing, um, but I'm curious to know too if, because you have talked a little bit about some of these other d directions your career has taken and um, other work that you've had while you were supporting and getting your you know creative businesses off the ground. Because this is something we've also talked about too, is just the balance between day jobs and our creative work and what the relationship between those two things are. Um, you know, for some artists, they want to, well, I know for me, I wanted to kind of stay in the creative world. So I sought out jobs in um, higher education or working with art schools so I could, you know, have that community while focusing on my work. Um, whereas other artists want to really keep keep that work separate so that they can focus all of their creative energy on their practice and their day job doesn't doesn't interfere, doesn't overlap. And so I, I'm kind of curious what the relationship between your previous jobs has been to your creative business. And also if there are, you know, skills or things that you were developing that you carried over, um, if that was something you were, you know, intentionally doing, like trying to build skills in another area so you could apply it to your art practice or um, just to kind of hear about you know, how some of those previous jobs informed how you were approaching and building your art business, if at all. Yeah. So I always had, when I was consulting, all of my clients were, most of them were non-creative. Um, I work with a lot of manufacturing companies and that was intentional. I did not want to do creative work as the day job and be depleted so that I couldn't mm -hmm. do my own creative work. So that's one part of it. The other thing was that I was working with a lot of smallish businesses, so anywhere from three to $10 million in revenue, which may seem huge um, to, to those of us who are not making three to $10 million a year in our own businesses. I was to say that small. <laughs> but um, these were people who maybe had a staff of 15 to 20 people who were creating a product. Often it was some kind of food product. You know, I was coming in and I was helping them manage their employees which led me to realize that I don't want to manage employees. So that was the one thing. The other was watching different kinds of CEOs and business owners struggle with whether to stay small and comfortable at, say, $3 million or try to grow it, a business to $10 million and the mindset shift that that required and how, how they were able to grow and how they were able to think about that growth. And... I realized too that I what I didn't want was to own a business not only that had staff but that had investors that had a board. What I really wanted was to create a business that was I that was sustainable for me for the rest of my life. And I definitely worked with business owners who their exit plan, exit strategy was to die. Like they were going to do this business until they were ready to retire and maybe they'd sell it um, or maybe the business would just pass on with them. And that was completely valid. That to me was a different way of looking at business because Nicole, you'll know this, like if you're in the Bay area, <laughs> there is a lot of pressure 
to grow and to get big and um, not to stay a small mom and pop business that your business is only valid and successful if you are able to get investment money and grow and sell. And that's not what I wanted. And it was refreshing to be around people for whom that was not their strategy either. They wanted things to stay sustainable. They maybe wanted to stay small. They wanted to be able to innovate, but that innovation was going to be thoughtful and not about disrupting anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that really is so counter to much of the culture out here in particular, where it really does, I don't know, I mean, this probably exists everywhere, but I, I do feel like it gets amplified here in the Bay Area a little bit, just this sort of hustle mentality and that, you know, yeah, the goal is just to to keep growing and keep working. And so it's really kind of counterculture to resist that and to, but it also sounds like in its own way a sign of growth that you're consciously making the decision to do what's best for you or to identify like how you want to run your business and what your life as an artist looks like and to make decisions that align with that and not what you're feeling some kind of external pressure to do oh absolutely I mean at the end of the day you get to decide what your business is going to look like and you get to decide how you define success and it's really hard when there's a lot of pressure, whether it's internal or external, to grow a business a specific way. Um, I know, Franny, my dog, is agreeing with me. She's she's chatting over here. <laughs> yes, Franny. Um, but I think part of it, too, was just getting older and realizing, oh, I, I don't have to do any of those things. I can do it my way. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And that's completely fine. But it also took a while for me to realize what my way was. Yeah. Very selfishly, as a, a person who wants to seek a fairly non-traditional life, I really appreciate hearing that because I think that, I don't know, it's really easy to kind of internalize the sort of default setting that's presented to us from society and, and the world and whoever. And it's so important to hear examples of someone that said like, no, I, I chose to do what was right for me. I chose to follow my path, to do what felt right to me, to create what I wanted to create, how I wanted to do it in the way that felt right to me. And I have so much, I think I said this before we actually hit record, but I one of the reasons that I was so excited to have you on the podcast is because you are so wonderful at communicating I mean, you're, you're wonderful with communication in general and how you express how you do your business and, and the way that you express your boundaries and the way that you express what you are and are not willing to do and, and so transparent. And I think that it can be really difficult to have such a level of vulnerability with our businesses, but also there's a lot of like freedom and privacy in, in setting those boundaries and communicating like, here's what you need to know, here's what you don't need to know, and don't worry about what you don't need to know. And I really appreciate that. And I guess that's not really a question, but I want to lead into that topic of kind of how you create boundaries around your business, how you, you know, whether they're like literal boundaries of like, I don't work at these times, or I don't work, you know, on these days or whatever, or boundaries in communication, you know, what parts of your, your life and work people have access to what uh, you do and don't do. I mean, even down to your website saying like, I'm down to do podcasts. Like that's so 
cool to see like you you say exactly what you do and don't want to do which I I need to do more of (laughs) um so I'm the queen of boundaries I'm really good at them it took some while to get to this point I was a people pleaser for a very very long time and then I wasn't and part of that was to be honest a decent amount of therapy in my 30s in my early 30s um and learning how to make mistakes and you know, not feeling like I had to do everything for everyone. And then part of it too is working in HR, having to do a lot of HR consulting where I saw the real results of not having boundaries with people who love their businesses and had employees and kind of wrapped their employees into a family and, you know, talked about a family environment and also you know, the families were incredibly dysfunctional. And so seeing that and really understanding that there's only, there's only so much I want to put out there. There's only so much I want to do that I have the sense of privacy and my own life that is separate from my business life. Now, my business and my life are incredibly intertwined, but they're also like, I don't, I don't live to work. That's not my sole purpose. Um, I love what I do. I feel really lucky that I get to do it. But at the end of the day, if I had to go and do something else, I could go and do something else. You know, I remember in the early days of the pandemic where I was really worried that I wasn't going to have any work, (laughs) that everything was just going to fall through and I didn't know what I was going to do, that I Mm -hmm. applied for, I thought about applying for unemployment. And I looked at all the information and all the questions. And one of them was, well, if you can't, if your business doesn't pick up in the next six months, would you be willing to go back to, to, to do a different kind of job? This was the first time I think that freelancers and artists were able to apply for unemployment. And I thought mm-hmm. about that and I thought, yeah, I would be, you know, it's fine. It wouldn't feel like a failure. It would just be, I've done this before where I had something I thought I loved and then it all fell apart and I started over again with something else and then I came back to it. So it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. But I also am not going to sacrifice myself, sacrifice my privacy or my peace of mind, all to make sales. That I have some really strict boundaries around what I want out of my life and how much I want to share about my life. And I just articulate those. I just tell people like, you know, don't ask me about this. <laughs> um, don't expect this. Like, I'm not going to respond to your, your email on the weekend. I'm I don't do DMs. I finally figured out how to turn off DMs on Instagram. I think that's a fairly new feature. Um, you yeah, you that. can turn them off. <laughs> off. You can turn them off only from people you don't follow. Oh. And so that that's led to additional peace of mind. I only ship orders twice a week. Right now, I'm actually on a bit of a hiatus. I'm not. I'm still working. I'm doing everything I need to do to keep the wheels running on my business. So I'm still shipping out orders. I just finished gathering all the information for my accountant for tax season. But my plan after having moved across the country and really like the last two years were actually the best two years ever for my business, um, surprisingly during a pandemic, but also I was exhausted. Like I was exhausted because I'd just been running on empty for two years. I was exhausted because I picked up and moved out of my home for 25 years and across the country into a completely new environment. And so I decided I was just going to do the bare minimum starting in February until I felt like not doing the bare minimum anymore. And that's been fantastic too. 
that I realized, oh, I don't have to wear myself out, burn myself out in order to keep the business running, that I can take some time off and follow my interests for that time and just do the things I want to do and everything will be okay. But also it took me, you know, it took some success. It took me 10 years of doing this kind of work before I really felt ready and able to, to take that time off. Yeah, this is just really refreshing and empowering to hear because I think it's so easy to get stuck in that like fear-based mentality or the scarcity mindset and, you know, to, I don't know, that pressure to sort of like self-sacrifice as artists that we should be struggling for our work is so real. And so to really be clear about, you know, what's important to you and what what you're willing to do, how you want to live your life is, is so powerful. And even in this, you know, creative industry where we are kind of inventing our own way and no two creative careers look alike, it's still, it's interesting how easy it is to fall into these patterns or to sort of abide by these expectations that we might be seeing around us. Oh, I was also going to say it's interesting to hear that some of this, um, these observations came through your other work and working in HR. And uh, it made me think about how much easier it can be sometimes to, uh, when you're like an outside observer, to realize like what's working and not working and lead to those light bulb moments of like, oh, this maybe, <laughs> maybe I should implement this or this is not what I want. So let's try something else. But I feel like, yeah, whole theme of this conversation has just been really um, learning to identify and be clear about what you know, what it is that you want, and then making decisions that will, that revolve around that. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that's important for creatives to hear. And thank you for sharing that. Hey, it's Nicole, your Beyond the Studio co-host. And I want to tell you a little more about Astropad Studio. I don't know if y'all remember me talking about my large painting commission last year, but I actually used an iPad and Apple Pencil to create the digital studies for those paintings. Astropad Studio can turn your iPad into a drawing tablet by mirroring your favorite Mac or PC desktop apps directly onto your iPad. So it combines the flexibility of your Apple Pencil with the power of full desktop apps like Photoshop and Illustrator. And it's Amanda, your other Beyond the Studio co-host. As someone who works primarily with a large flatbed scanner and a desktop computer, being able to work from anywhere but still have the same quality of work sounds like just what my practice needs, especially now that I'm beginning to travel with work. As artists, I know we tend to ask a lot from our tools, and AstroPad Studio is engineered for the most demanding creative workflow. It guarantees low latency performance over Wi-Fi or USB cable, so you can set up your workspace on the go. As someone who really values hands-on methods with my work, having digital tools where I can replicate both my process and sense of mark making just as easily by customizing my workflow with things such as programmable gestures, custom pressure curves and pressure smoothing and unlimited shortcuts is important. So whether you're a fine artist, illustrator, or a digital artist, AstroPad Studio is the ultimate iPad app for artists. Millions of artists already rely on AstroPad Studio for Mac, and now it's available for PC artists too. If you're ready to take your creative workflow to the next level, you can start your 30-day free trial of AstroPad Studio today. Visit astropad.com via the link in our show notes to get started. 
Plus, Beyond the Studio listeners save 10% on your first year when you enter the promo code BEYOND at checkout. This is sort of circling back to some of the things that you had talked about earlier about the way that your business is structured and how you've built it into something that feels really sustainable. Um, You talked a little bit about licensing, and uh, I know on Instagram you've shared this really great uh, income pie chart that breaks down what your uh, different streams of income are as an artist and I think actually when we saw that, Amanda and I were like, oh, we definitely need to get her on the podcast right away because we we love talking about those things. And we had each created similar charts for um, a panel that we were on uh, with an art school about a year back. And, and I know Amanda does this personally with her business to sort of visually see how things have changed over the years. So I was wondering if you might be willing to share just um, a bit of an overview of what the breakdown of your business model is like in general like what are the different streams of income uh, and then if that has you know changed in significant ways over the years or even during the pandemic sure um so I started doing this pie chart because my friend Andrea Pippins who's also she's an illustrator oh yeah have you interviewed her yet no but yeah I'm familiar with her work um Oh, she's fantastic. Andrea Pippins had shared her income chart a few years ago, and I started doing something similar because I really liked how she did it, how it really broke down and made all the different income streams really visual and easy for me to understand, but also something shareable where I could talk about all the different ways I make money. And for a long time, the biggest chunk of my income was from teaching. I used to teach in-person block printing classes started doing that in 2014 or 2015. So teaching was a big chunk. Product sales were a big chunk too. Licensing was a smaller chunk until last year. And then I also make money occasionally from affiliate fees, which always feels like a small amount of money because it comes in dribs and drabs every month or every quarter. But by the end of the year, you know, it's like $1,000, which is not a ton of money uh, over the course of the year, but it's also not nothing. And then video classes. I used to do my own video classes, and then I licensed the rights to that video class to another company. And then writing. So writing my book, and then occasionally I'll guest post on a blog or something along those lines. And I think that that's it. But that's a lot, right? Mm -hmm. And I also do, I did for a couple of years there, I got some, I had some influencer campaigns that, strangely enough, I didn't have to post on my own socials because I don't. I, do, I that's one of my requirements. I just say I don't do sponsored content because that's not what my feed is about unless the right company came along, but the right company has not yet come along. And so this clothing retailer said, that's fine. We'll just use our, your photos um, in all of our materials. I'm like, that's great. As long as I don't have to post, that's fantastic. And it was, you know, more money than sometimes it's more money than I made in write, from writing that year. You know? So it's Damn. just the, the numbers for the influencer stuff boggled the mind. Anyway, uh, but that's not what I normally do. It was just nice. It helped, it helped with mm-hmm. the down payment on this house I bought. Nice. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, that's, I think those are all the different pools of money. And so teaching used to be number one, teaching and product sales. Um, and that held pretty steady until the pandemic hit and all of my teaching went away. And it was interesting because that was the year I decided I was going to stop teaching at the end of 2020. Anyway, I was burned out on it. 
but I wanted to give people the chance to actually like take a class with me before I stopped. I didn't want to just stop. Guess what? I just stopped because of the <laughs> pandemic. So, <laughs> so that really shifted and I had to rely a bit more on product sales that year. And then licensing came in. Unexpectedly, licensing came in that year um, in a bunch of different ways. So I had a fabric collection. I had something with anthropology. And then I also did something with world market. And so, and these were like all advances. And then last year was when the money started actually rolling in from royalties. And so licensing and product sales kind of shifted. So they swapped places, whereas product sales used to be where the bulk of my money came from. Um, in addition to teaching, all of a sudden licensing was where the bulk of my money came from. I will caveat that all by saying that there is a big push right now in the art world, the commercial art world towards licensing for there are classes that teach you how to license. There are groups around licensing. And I think a lot of times people find out about me because of my licensed collections and think that I have only been licensing for a couple of years. And that's like my career really was built on licensing. The reality is that it took 10 years for me to get to the point where I could license and I could have enough of a demand for my designs and for that to really be sustainable. And a lot of the stuff that I started licensing early on were things like in 2018 were things that I created in 2012, 2013, 2014, that my work, all of that work, which I was producing myself was the work that folks wanted, that businesses really wanted. But it took, you know, there was a, a lag time of three to five years before that work became desirable. So that's also why I tell people, try not to design to trends, try to design your own thing. <laughs> and then it might take a few years. So that's my side note about licensing. When people think that licensing, particularly young artists or art, people who maybe got into art because they wanted to do licensing, I think that a lot of times people think that it's going to be a pretty immediate, like one to three year turnaround. And, and the reality is that it often is not. And that you need to be creating your own products and getting things out there on your own before a licensee is even going to notice you. That's kind of a digression, but yeah. I, I just wanted to share that. No, I think that's so important. And that, I mean, that really applies to any aspect of the arts. You know, there's no like silver bullet that's going to solve all of these problems for you overnight it's it really is the product of years of working and that lag time like you're saying between maybe producing work and then really finding where it's going to fit in the world or maybe there are different uses for it or you know sometimes that can take years it's not you know you're making something in the studio and it's immediately going out the door um, in every case and so I feel like that's really important to hear well and that's also why I I advocate so strongly for people to have a day job. I had a day job for so long. And the reason I kept that day job partly was because I needed the money. But the other part is that I never wanted to put commercial success, put that pressure on the work that I was creating, mm -hmm. especially in the early days. And that allowed the work that I created to be something that was a bit more enduring because I didn't need, I didn't give myself a year to say, okay, let's see if I can do this in a year. And if it doesn't work out, I'm going to quit, mm -hmm. right? And I think a lot of times people do that. You know, you, do, you have a job you don't like and you're thinking, okay, well, if I can, I'm going to try to make a go of my art career. And uh, at, if it doesn't work out at the end of the year, I'll just, I'll go and do something else. And that's often not how it works. 
that it's really consistency over a long period of time. Mm -hmm. And so find the job that stresses you out the least and pays you the most (laughs) and and do that. And it's that gives you the most amount of time to create your work. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But when I, I wrote an article years ago about not quitting your day job and why it was so important to me to have a day job, and I had people come and tell me, actually, I managed to do this without a day job. It was just me and my husband's salary. <laughs> it was like, so I don't have a husband. <laughs> okay. Well, someone had a day no job other. in that equation. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> also, don't tell me like being married isn't a day job because that's a lot of work. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so if you don't have that other form of income, if you don't have steady yeah. income coming in from somewhere and it's steady, like good income that your day job is, it's what really is going to allow you to create work. It, it sounds counterintuitive, but that day job is what's going to allow your work to be interesting and different and true to you. And it's going to allow you to make mistakes and experiment because at the end of the day, nobody has to buy it. It's the work that you make yeah. for yourself. And then hopefully at some point, you're going to be making work for other people and they'll be paying you for it. But often that doesn't come until you've made a lot of work and a lot of mistakes and a lot of ugly stuff and you know have had a mm-hmm. lot of half-formed ideas um, because I definitely have had all of those. And then was very grateful that I wasn't re- uh, relying on that stuff to pay my bills. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was going to say, have you been describing my career thus far? Because <laughs> this all feels really familiar. And I I mean, I wish I had heard these things in my 20s when I was, I mean, I very specifically chose day jobs to support my art practice that didn't require any kind of creative thinking, but they were really exhausting day jobs. Like they were in retail, they were in food service. So they were really stressful, lots of, you know, on your feet, lots of weird hours. And the flexibility was helpful, but it definitely, the desire to get out of those jobs and work for myself, I think, led me to make some kind of dumb decisions in my business that I've since spent years digging myself out of, you know, whether they're decisions that got me into debt or decisions where I'm like, oh, if I similarly with wholesale, like expand my products and and make more, 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 then it's like, oh, I have to sell all these things and I have to store them and move them and I have to package them and I have to ship them places and now they want more things and now I have to spend more money on more things that are making me less money. You know, it's just, it's a lot of, um, I mean, I imagine probably my whole career will be digging myself (laughs) in and out of various holes as I learn and, and I guess that's part of it and... I, I don't know, I guess that's just the creative career. I think that's exactly it. And I think the longer you do it, the more resources you have to dig yourself out of holes. That's all it is. Yeah. You're still going to make mistakes. You'll just be able to recover from them far more easily, especially once you're doing this full time. Like I can have a product that bombs because I have all this other money, not all this other money, but other money mm-hmm. coming in from other places. Um, and it's okay. Mm-hmm. I can absorb the risk a little bit better now. But that was always my hope, was that I didn't have to knock it out of the park every single time. But I had to do it often enough that mm-hmm. when I did have flops or when I wanted to take a year off and just do the things I wanted to do, that I had enough of a cushion to be able to do it. Yeah. 
Well, that's why I love that income pie chart breakdown so much too, because I think it shows the reality for many artists, which is even if you're, you know, a quote unquote full-time artist, most people have multiple income streams or, you know, lots of different ways that they're bringing in revenue through, through that quote unquote art business. So I think it definitely isn't a one size fits all pie chart. Um, and it changes over time and over the years. I also feel like it's important to note um, when you were talking about coming into licensing a little bit later, uh, it, and it sounds like some of these larger companies like Anthropology or World Market came to you. Um, but again, like this was the product of uh, years of work where you had been really actively getting your work out there and you know selling your work directly or through Etsy. It wasn't like they just, you know, spotted your work in art school and immediately there's just overnight success so i feel like those things are just important to point out too um even when you've uh, built up a really impressive client list uh, where people are coming to you and seeking out your work you know often that's the product of years of unseen work where you've been really actively pushing your work out into the world exactly um, I was curious when some of those opportunities did start to come about um how you were how you learned to navigate them, if it was a sort of easy translation and having done other types of collaborations or just learning how to navigate contracts in general, or if it really felt like a new world and what kinds of resources you were seeking out to be able to, um, to navigate that. A bunch of different resources. Um, so the first is that I, because I'd done HR and operations, I spent a lot of time reviewing contracts and employment agreements and handbooks. So I had a general sense of the lingo. I understood a lot of what was going on. But I also, so I, I worked with an attorney. I continue to work with an attorney who specializes in artists and IP law, which is really great because he will review contracts and will break things down for me and explain, um, explain a lot of things that I don't understand. And also, like, he's reviewed so many contracts for artists with these specific companies that he knows kind of the ins and outs of some of these companies. I won't name names. <laughs> mm. He knows who's trying to pull what. <laughs> Was this so someone you had that's... already been working with or did you seek them out yes. when some of these? Okay. Um, I had, I started working with him. I can't remember when I started working with him. Um, I have also had licensing deals that have fallen through that I've either pulled out of or that just haven't worked out for whatever reason before we signed the contract. So and it was partly because reviewing the contract with him, we were like, ooh, this isn't going to work. The other way, and this is more recent because it's only been around for about two years, is I'm a member of an organization called the Art Brand Alliance. And it's specifically for artists who have a strong brand, who often have multiple streams of income and are doing commercial work. So people who are doing licensing, folks who maybe write books or illustrate books, commercial illustration, editorial illustration, a whole gamut of things. And so we will often talk about in our group, um, and it's an online group um, that has a membership requirement, but we will often talk about these things pretty specifically in our group. And because there's such a range of experience levels in that group, often we can crowdsource from the group information about working with this particular licensee and how much they're willing to budge on the advance or whether or not they even offer advances and how how much of a percentage um, to ask for. Yeah, I mean, the, the rule great. is always ask for more money <laughs> and hope you get some more money. Yes. Um, yes. But those have been really fantastic 
uh, resources. And the founder of the Art Brand Alliance, Betsy, um, she is also someone I work with, um, worked with, she's a consultant as well. And so when I would be negotiating with specific companies, I would go to her and ask her, this is before the Art Brand Alliance came along, how, how to navigate some of this stuff. When I was younger and had my stationary business, I was always scared to ask for help because I didn't want to be seen as someone who needed help. The reality is we all need help with something sometimes. And so this time around, I figured out, well, I have enough artist friends. I will ask them and they will refer me to people who can help. And sometimes that just means, you know, paying someone who knows a lot more than you do to, to guide you through a process where there are potentially a lot of dollars on the line. Yeah, I think that's good to know too, because, you know, when you look at maybe that immediate upfront cost uh, of either like hiring an accountant, hiring a lawyer, it can, f a lot of creatives, I think, you know, we have this independent streak. So there's this tendency to want to just figure it out on our own. But thinking about it in those terms, like what could you stand to lose if you don't understand the contract or if you, you know, miss out on this huge write-off or whatever it is, um, there could be a lot more that you're missing out on by not making that investment. Oh, absolutely. And I just, um, I just started working with an accountant this year. So I started working with a bookkeeper last year. And before that, I'd been doing everything my, on my own. Mm -hmm. And my taxes were fairly simple. Like last year, I started an LLC. I moved across the country. I bought a house. I have some rental property. I'm like, oh, there's a lot of... Much more complicated. Yeah, it's way more complicated <laughs> now. So I need to, uh, yeah, I needed some professional help. It was time to let go of that. And it was a huge chunk of change. A lot of money. And thankfully, I have that money. But it was, uh, you know, there was a moment where I thought, maybe I should just do this on my own another year. <laughs> and then decided, no, that would be ridiculous. Why not just pay someone who can actually do it? a great job of it and I don't have to think about it and then will continue to work with me so that I know how much to pay in estimated taxes and um, will know when I have, like when it makes sense for me to put a big chunk of money into a retirement account. Like this is the help I need. And just the huge weight off my shoulders when I submitted all my tax paperwork to, to them yesterday, amazing. You know, I, I slept really well last night. <laughs> Yeah, it's just like the mental knowledge that, oh, it's not all on you. Like there's someone else that can help carry this load and figure things out. And you don't have to worry about like, did I forget this thing? Did I mess it up? And you have another professional <laughs> helping you through it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I really appreciate what you said about asking for help. As someone who's not very good at it, it's a lesson I'm trying to learn because I think it's it's easy to kind of get into that habit out of necessity early in your career because you're like, I don't know anyone that could help me. Everyone, everyone I know is also struggling. We're all we're all having a tough time trying to figure it out. But there's, I don't know. There, I, I feel like there's no like nobility in enforcing yourself to do something the hard way. And if if you have access to someone that is able to help you and that and is capable and, and offering, it's like, take them up. <laughs> I mean, I know I'll, I'll really appreciate hearing this back, especially as I edit this and like reference this conversation later. Like, okay, Jen said it's okay to ask for help. <laughs> Jen can ask for help. I can ask for help. <laughs> well, and this is why it's so important as an artist to have a network of artists, to have other artist friends. Um, 
I have benefited so much. And this isn't like to say that this is a tr- transactional relationship where all I get out, like I, I take and take and take from friends, but to have conversations around these things, because my friends with like regular day jobs, they can't relate. They don't understand. Um, and, and neither does my dog, Franny. Um, <laughs> she just wants to play all the time in the background. Doesn't understand all the time. working. <laughs> I think our, our mail carrier must be delivering mail. Franny, come. Come here. Hi, sweetie. Just be quiet for a second. Um, but it's important to have a network of friends um, and other artists that you speak with who you feel comfortable talking to about some of these things because often they're the ones who are going to provide you with the guidance and the sounding board and maybe not advice, but you can just kind of bounce things off people. Yeah. And there's also, I got to say, a ton of information online. People have written blogs. They write tons of stuff on their Instagram captions, you know, don't cold call someone and just ask them, Hey, I've got something I need to run by you. I don't know you, but I follow you on Instagram. Like it's pretty easy to find lots of information out there about these things. Um, if you're scared of asking for help, but at the end of the day, like don't, don't crowdsource, um, legal and financial information from just anyone on, on the internet, um, develop and cultivate relationships and also learn how to Learn how to fall down a rabbit hole of information and parse it out. Yeah, that's all part of that professional development as artists. And, and, and it is great that, you know, nowadays there is so much free information online. You can, you know, access anything on YouTube or, or there are courses, you know, video courses that you can uh, pay for or find for free. There's so much information, like you're saying, um, just by following like-minded people. And uh, you can glean a lot through that. But then, yeah, knowing when to take it a step further and developing those relationships beyond that, you know, virtual environment um, so that you have people that you can lean on and and exchange information with. And and then even beyond that, knowing when to outsource and when to actually hire help or support for your business. Exactly. This is a little bit of a segue, but we touched a little bit on the very beginning about how you have written two books and I am so curious about how writing and putting a book together how that is part of your practice and and kind of what you've learned from those experiences and yeah I mean I've written two very different books so the first book I wrote print pattern so is about block printing and specifically block printing fabric yardage and a little bit about sewing it into clothes and that was that was created from a project that I did in 2014 or 2015 probably 2015 of the same name and it's a lot of it is based on the classes that I taught and so I wanted to write that book because I kept getting asked to like people would email me and ask me all kinds of questions about block printing and want me to guide them through the process and folks don't do that (laughs) um we're busy. We have time. Uh, we don't have time to do that. We, we just don't. Buy the book. Take the class. Buy the yeah. book. And exactly. And so, and I couldn't teach everywhere, right? I couldn't travel around the country to teach. I didn't want to travel around the country to teach. <clears throat> um, and I had a video class, but the video class at that time wasn't as comprehensive as the book would be. So I wrote a book um, really for, for folks who who wanted to know about my process but couldn't take a class with me in person or who had taken a class with me in person and just really wanted some kind of guide at home. And so that was 
That was an easy book to write in many ways because it was just writing about a process that I'd already honed and knew really well. And um, it was more project management, like managing the pattern designer, managing photography and the art and the art direction of the shoots. And with that book, everything just kind of flowed. It was really easy to do in many ways. Um, my second book is a much different book. It is oral histories and personal narratives and interviews and survey responses from people of color um, who do textile arts and crafts in the U.S. and a little bit in Canada, too. And so that was just a much bigger undertaking. I had to put out a survey, review the survey, do a lot of writing, do a lot of interviewing, a lot of interviewing and editing. And it was just in reality, like a beast of a book to put together. It took much longer than my publisher had expected just because there was so much material and I couldn't parse it down. Um, and I had to be forced to, to narrow it down and really get a focus. And I'm really thrilled and happy that they did because I love the end product, but it was definitely a huge undertaking. Now, for the most part, you're not going to get rich writing a book, especially if you're in craft. It is... There isn't a huge market for it, and advances are tend to be fairly small, and you know royalties are fine, but you've got to earn out your advance first. And so I, I tell people, don't do this because you think you're going to make a lot of money from writing a book. Do it for other reasons. There's a certain cachet to having written a book. I remember years ago, I had a, I was talking to a company about a, about licensing, and the licensing deal fell through. It just wasn't the right thing for me, but. I met with the CEO who was kind of a, a crusty man of an, a certain age, like he was close to retirement. He was like old school. It had to do with, it was for, I don't want to say what industry it was for, but it was definitely like very textile and manufacturing based. And he was just old school. And he went through my fabric samples that I brought of the line that I'd already created. And he was like, oh, you know, this is nice. This is nice. Oh yeah. Tell me about your blog, which is what he thinks all websites are. And I was telling him about that. And then I brought out my book and he stopped and he said, wait, you wrote a book? And he was so excited about the book and he was just flipping through the pages really slowly saying, this is amazing, this is incredible. Because to certain folks, like a book is really a big deal. That it's easy to get a website out, right? It's easy to produce your own products. But a book, a book shows that actually you can project manage, that you have an eye for art direction, that you can articulate what it is that you're doing, that you've like put this thing out there to the world that anybody can pick up and handle and it's accessible in a certain way. And so I always remember that moment as like, this is the reason why it makes sense to have a book sometimes because you know, like the world is catching up to social media. It's catching up to, to blogs, whatever. Blogs kind of don't exist. Like it's catching up to newsletters now as these really powerful marketing tools. But a lot of the industry is still a bit old school. And so for me, having that book really communicated well about my, I don't know, my professionalism, my viability as an artist to a certain generation. Yeah, like some people see it as a sign of credibility, like, oh, you've been published. That is big, right. big stamp success. That's, I wish I had that. Uh. <laughs> right, like if, I, if I'm in a big deal blog online, my parents don't really care. But if I'm in a newspaper, oh my gosh, <laughs> you know, my mom's buying up multiples to show her friends. I'm like, oh my God, it's so embarrassing. 
Yes. I mean, selfishly, I, I always love hearing about someone's process with putting together a book. And like you said, you have two completely different experiences with, with two totally different books. One very technical, very straightforward. Here's the process. Here's how to do it. And one that's like collecting stories. It, it takes a lot. And it's so much so much more time and, and research beyond the, the final presented edited conversation or, you know, what you get at the end. But from what I've heard of, of other people who have written books, they've paralleled it to like having a baby where it's like you are you are birthing this thing. You're putting forth a lot of work and it, it involves a lot of gestating and a lot of time and a lot of visits with, you know, various, I mean, not doctors, but, you know, publishers, editors, whoever. And when it's done, you can't just leave it. That's the other thing is that it's done and then six months later you are out there like promoting the book, begging people to read the book, (laughs) doing endless Mm -hmm. interviews for the book. Like that's one of the things that people forget. Like a book doesn't sell itself. Like you actually have to help sell the book. And after a while I put the book aside. I was done with it in my mind. And then I get the email from my agent saying, okay, now it's time to start talking about marketing plans. And I'm thinking, I just turned this in. Don't I get a break from the book? No, no, <laughs> no. This book will live mm-hmm. on beyond you. It, you must, you must push it while you are here. Exactly. Yeah. Were these also opportunities that um, you had sought out, thinking that you wanted to write this book, or similar to some of these licensing deals, were they starting to come to you as a product of other, you know, other work that you'd done? No, I wanted to write both of these books. So that first book, Print Pattern So, I put together a proposal and sent it out to um, editors and publishers. And the publisher that I ended up going with, the editor just cold emailed me saying, I, um, I would love to talk to you about turning this project of yours into a book. And I said, well, that's great because I have a proposal and a bunch of publishing houses are already reviewing it. So you need to get back to me quickly. Wow. Um, And that actually worked out really well. (laughs) Um, And then the second one, I, that was also a book I pitched. It had a couple of different iterations in the pitching process. A year apart, I put it on hold. And the second year was the year that it really coalesced and I had a better idea of what I wanted it to be. Yeah, that's amazing. I love that even in that first um, story when someone did come to you, it's like you were already ready. You had already been going out for that opportunity Um, I feel like you said something similar earlier about licensing, even that you had just sort of put it out there into the universe. And so, you know, even when these opportunities do sort of come to us, it's usually, you know, from a very intentional decision to try and move yourself in that direction. And I know you have been interviewed on many podcasts in the past, and I'm wondering if there are topics that we haven't covered that you really love to talk about or maybe questions that you don't get asked very often, but, you know, wish that people would ask you more about? You know, I was excited to be on your podcast because people rarely ask me about the business of running an art business. Oh, like it's well, great. <laughs> right. That a lot of times people, they see artists and that's it, right? Like I'm an artist or you're an artist. You don't have to think about the business aspects of, at all. Or I rarely get asked about that. I get asked about my process, which is actually like harder for me to talk about than it is for me to talk about the day-to-day management of, of an art business. So I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled to be able to talk about the business side of it. 
Um, I'm thrilled to be able to talk about the money part of it because nobody asks me about that. <laughs> Even though I'll put it out there all the time, like I do that pie chart, everybody's excited about that. And then it, and then it turns to, well, where'd you buy your rug? Or how come you don't sell wallpaper? Or I have this technical question about block printing. Can you answer it for me? And I'm like, you know, that's just not, that's not what I do. <laughs> like, um, there is a lot of work that goes on when you're an artist. You have to, in addition to the creation of the work, you have to market the work. You have to sell it. You have to distribute it. And those are all the different things that go into being successful as an artist. Like, I don't necessarily think I'm more talented than other artists out there. There are so many artists whose work I admire and I aspire to be as good as they are. But I think that I'm really good at the business side of it. I think that I'm really good at getting the work out there and talking about my work and not being shy about the fact that I am indeed running a business. Yeah. Um, you know, and making it really clear to folks. I mean, even things like in social media where people ask me where I got certain things that I have in my house or that I'm wearing. And I am not here to sell things for other people, particularly for businesses that have a lot of marketing money, right? I'm here to sell my right. own work. And if I were to be paid by these businesses, one, I would disclose it. Mm -hmm. Of course, because I think legally I have to, but also just ethically it makes sense. And two, I would ask for a lot of money because I feel like my word um, and my recommendation is worth something. And I can wholeheartedly recommend the things that I make because I made them. I love them. I'm really proud of them. And that's what that's like the point of my social media is to convey that and to get people excited about my things, about making their own things, about living a life that is full of beautiful items, uh, a life that's full of creativity. It's not about shilling for a large corporation that quite frankly um, does needs to pay me in order to shill for them. And that's, again, that's the major digression. But I think, you know, I haven't talked about this really explicitly in a way that I think people, that resonates with people, that they really get, um, because it's hard to have those conversations on social media. But I'm very clear about what it's used for, is for in my, in my life, in my business. And, you know, bringing it all back to where we started, talking about boundaries, that's one of the big boundaries I have, right? that I have to set this boundary that this is what I'm using my social media for. This is the information I'm willing to share with you. Everything else is off the table because I'm clear about what it is that I'm trying to do. Not everybody gets that. And, you know, there are lots of accounts out there that will share everything about their lives. And that's totally okay because we all make the choice at the end of the day about what we're willing to share and what we're not. But that's not what I've chosen for myself. And so I have to constantly remind followers, again, that you can do, you can make social media about what you want it to be about. You can create the business that you want to create, that you can live the life for the most part, you know, that you want to live, um, that it's up to you to set those parameters and those boundaries and to work towards things, that you can't be passive about these things if you want to have 
the success, the life, the business you want to have. Unless you have endless amounts of cash, in which case <laughs> you can have all of those things. But for the rest of us who don't have those resources, you've got you've to set some boundaries and you've got to state what it is you want, even if you know you can't have it at that moment. Otherwise, you're just going to get any old thing. Yeah. Wow. I just appreciate so much of what you're saying. And I feel like um, you've been so intentional with every aspect of your life and business. And that's such a great lesson for other creatives that, you know, these things don't happen by accident. Or if you're not being intentional, it is easy to get swept up in, uh, you know, kind of accidentally working for other people or, you know, uh, selling products that you don't intend to or whatever it is. Um, but just, you know, being really conscious and intentional about how you're using your platforms and this community that you've cultivated and, you know, how you're communicating about your work and, um, just all of it. So again, I feel like you are, well, you said yourself the queen of boundaries. It is so true. And (laughs) (laughs) let us all be more like Jen. (laughs) (laughs) it's a great way to get some peace of mind let me tell you (laughs) people stop asking you for things that you don't want to provide it's great (laughs) yeah but also you're just so transparent with with these things and with again what it looks like to run a business as an artist and I mean that's what we really wanted to create this podcast for was to be able to have those kinds of conversations and to understand, you know, all of the things beyond the creative process, how are artists making it work and how are they making a living and putting the pieces together. And, you know, we are just endlessly grateful for the generosity of the artists we've been able to speak to, because I think it is so valuable. And like you said, you know, you're, you're cultivating these networks and these friendships outside of, you know, this type of platform. Um, and those are the things that help you to move forward and make decisions that are best for yourself. So I think, you know, we're, we're just grateful to be able to have these kinds of conversations here and be able to share them and um, that you're willing to be so transparent when it comes to that part of your life. Well, thank you. And thank you for creating this podcast. I'm so glad to have had this conversation. And I'm so glad you're having these conversations with so many other artists. Oh, thank you. Oh, thank you. So appreciate you and, and your time and sharing your brilliantly entrepreneurial story. And um, before we leave, where can listeners find your work? Um, And do you have any final thoughts? And where can they buy those books? (laughs) So let's see. Um, You can find me online at jenhewitt.com. And my Instagram is the same. It's at jenhewitt. I have a Facebook account, but I don't use it very much um, for my business because there's only one of me and I I can't manage comments on Instagram and Facebook. So Facebook had to go. It's too much. Um, and let's see. So I, you can buy my book at any bookstore. Both of those books are available at any bookstore. I also have copies of This Long Thread in my own store. And let's see. You can find some of my work at Anthropology. Um, you can find work also at World Market. I think that that collection is no longer in stores or it's selling out. And then there will be a new collection in a month or two, um, meaning April, April or May. And, um, and my fabric is currently available in all kinds of fabric stores. So independent fabric stores. 
And of course, my books are available at the library. Please, <laughs> I, I love a library. Yes. So you can definitely find it at your local public library. Yes. Oh, thank you so much for coming on the share. Or ooh, words. Thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your, your thoughts and your wisdom and experience. And we, we so appreciate you and your time. Thank you. I was thrilled to talk with you. That's it for this episode of the Beyond the Studio podcast. You can find show notes, references, and a brief summary of the episode over at our website, beyondthe.studio. While you're there, be sure to sign up for our mailing list to find out about upcoming guests, special announcements, and podcast giveaways. Don't forget, if you're a fan of the podcast, please leave us a rating and review, submit to our listener spotlight, and if you want to support the podcast by making a tax-deductible donation, head over to our website, beyondthe.studio. Thank you.